Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us on Zoom Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. For the Zoom link, please contact tikvatdirector at gmail.com, or you can contact us on our website, tikvatisrael.com. There, you can also support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and find helpful resources. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. I felt in preparing the Lord speak to me, you know, I always try to share what the Lord is saying to share, and I'm not claiming to be a prophet, but, you know, I have this sense in the spirit of what should I share, and I, I, I believe that I could not ignore the terrible situation that the United States is going through here. And we do get all the reports in the Jewish press here in the United States, and it's being interpreted in all kinds of different ways in Israel, which is very interesting. And it's different to be looking at the United States and what's happening from Israel as we have all these protests and what should we think about it? What should we think about systemic racism? Is this true? How much is it true? How do we get to the bottom of it? How do we heal it? Uh, where should believers be as they address this? And I wanted to address this on the basis of what I call Torah and New Covenant. I want to look at this idea of Torah and New Covenant and apply how we can comport ourselves to be sources of redemptive healing during this time as a Messianic community. Michael Rudolph and I uh, did a book, Michael primarily, me secondarily, but we worked on it together on applying the Torah in the New Covenant. And I hope you all know that. It's entitled Torah in Messiah, and it's um, two volumes, and it's almost a thousand pages. And I hope everybody there reads through the whole thing over the next year, right? But uh, really, it's quite a comprehensive application of the parts of the Torah the commandments of the Torah that are applicable without there being a temple system, which is, uh, you know, the rabbis have different tabulations for what that is and how to apply it. It's our view that the Torah is practical. It's our view that the Torah must be applied, but we apply it as is fitting to the new covenant order. And therefore, we apply it primarily as we go through it and then through the teaching of Yeshua and then the shlichim, the apostles, and that Messianic Jews on the basis of Torah should have something practically to say about this situation. Uh, We shouldn't be just jumping on uh, different bandwagons of response that don't come from a biblical foundation, but that are based on humanistic responses without reference to the scripture. And these issues are difficult. If we're going to address these issues at all, we have to begin with a biblical definition of justice, not a Marxist definition of justice. The Marxist definition of justice coming out of a a secular humanist worldview tells us that justice is equality so that people have the same incomes, they have the same lot in life, I remember in communism, they wanted to give everybody the same square feet to live in. And uh, as soon as you define justice as equality, it becomes as one uh, Dutch philosopher uh, said some 70 years ago, that it becomes the tyranny 
the equality tyranny motif of the Western world, and it becomes a tyranny of conformity over everyone. So because I was trying to address social justice, I wrote a book from a biblical perspective, a Torah perspective on what social justice is. And I'll get to that definition in a minute. I do not have much hope for solving the problems of the United States or any country without a tremendous influence from the scriptures and from the gospel. There have been many books written on this. One uh, prominent one is by uh, Rodney Stark, but there was another one that just came out from a British author who's an atheist of all things. But he says the progress in the West was based on the influence of the Bible. Can you believe that? Uh, the Judeo-Christian ethic and uh, progress has come from the influence of believers who are seeking to apply the Bible and influencing the society and its values is based on that. So when we study the Bible and we look at the idea of love and justice, we have to have a biblical definition of what love is. Love is not indulgence emotionally. It's not humanistic. Love is, and some of you have heard this definition, the passionate identification with others that seeks their good guided by law. And I would like everybody to memorize that definition. It'll save you from so much uh, of people posturing over the issue of love, but without having a biblical orientation of love. Love is passionate. It really cares. It's not just a, a kind of a dry law thing. It really is uh, connected to the right emotional orientation. It's a passionate identification with others. You're identifying with their situation, with their pain, with their victory, and you're seeking their good, guided by law, because nothing that's against the Torah of God, the teaching of God, is biblical love, because we know that what the law presents us as the pattern of life, as the parameters for life, is where human beings find their fulfillment. So we connect the meaning of love to the, uh, the parameters of what we have through the Torah as it's applied in the New Covenant. And when we talk about good, what is their good? It's that they might come into the destiny fulfillment that God has for them. Because God desires a good destiny fulfillment for each human being. And some people don't get much of that in this life because of the way it is, but if they come to Yeshua, they'll have an eternal destiny. And that's the most important thing of all, and that is to fulfill our destiny forever and ever with him. Love motivates us toward justice because justice is that seeking of an order of righteousness that maximizes the potential of people to fulfill their God-given destiny. So we're seeking to structure society so the maximum number of people can fulfill their God-given destiny. And that's what justice is connected to. It's not just retribution in terms of person breaking the law and having a just penalty. It has to do with a whole order of righteousness that we seek to establish in society. So unless there is a significant influence of the gospel and scripture history proves that we don't make much progress in societies toward justice in a biblical sense. Now I want to apply this definition uh, to the teaching of, through the teaching of Yeshua and what he says about 
Well, how this would apply to what Yeshua would teach us today about the issues of racism and violent acts. And we Jews should know that we have been the subject of racism too. So we should be able to identify with this because of the history of anti-Semitism. I think some of you know that Richmond is a historic place of pain and suffering, being the capital of the Confederacy and division sometimes. Some people have felt spiritually a unity has been very hard to attain in Richmond because of the historic divisions that are still intergenerational and very rooted there in Richmond. And I know in Richmond itself, you're having some of these upheavals over the particular uh, protests that are taking place today. So I want to come to the teaching of Yeshua, and I want to speak about five points today. I'm breaking the rules of hermeneutics. You're supposed to have three, but I'm going to have five. You have my definition of love and justice. And in the, in the teaching of Yeshua, love and justice begins with a call for repentance. In Mark chapter 115, we read that Yeshua preached, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And I believe that those that have interpreted at hand to be is available to you are correct. That the kingdom of God is available to you. And what Yeshua was saying is that with his coming, and then onward from then as we come even into the day of Shavuot, which we just celebrated, the kingdom of God has broken into this world, and that is the order of God's righteousness, has broken into this world, and we are called to repent, to enter into that kingdom, and to live in that kingdom, and to live from that kingdom. And this repentance means that we have to examine our life, and we have to turn from our selfish uh, or self-centered life toward the way of love and allow God's power to transform us so that we might enter a kingdom with other people in the body of believers, but also influencing society that is a kingdom where justice and order take place among us, first of all. We have to live this out among us, first of all. And that the kingdom is also shown by the mighty miracles, the miracles of Yeshua, and that we should see more and more as we progress toward the second coming of the Lord shows it that the kingdom of God has broken into this world. It is available. It is here. And it's showing itself through the mighty works of God. It's very, very in interesting to note that when you repudiate all hatred, all vengeance, and you give yourself to the power of the kingdom, there's tremendous influence for good in society. Secondly, love and justice are a call for submission to the teaching of Torah as um, interpreted through Yeshua. We read today Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to read this again. For what Yeshua says here, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the Torah and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill until heaven and earth pass away. Not the slightest letter or serif shall ever pass away from the Torah until all things be fulfilled. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, this one shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So, and then he says, for unless your righteousness exceeds that of the 
Pharisees and Torah scholars, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we have this futurizing of this, so people read this, you know, from a, you know, maybe a Christian point of view, and they say, oh, you're not entering the kingdom of God, and they mean go to heaven. I think what Yeshua was saying is, you have to be submitted to the application of Torah through his teaching if you're going to enter into now the kingdom of heaven and live in and from that kingdom. And so his teaching is part of our expression of living in and from the kingdom of God. And um, Yeshua's teaching is very much an application of Torah and what he is saying we are to do in that application, the application is right here. The righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees is laid out right here in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. You can see it. And in the rest of the teaching of the Gospels, it's very, very clear. So um, what he is laying out for us is in a context that is very much uh, in, in line with the, our people in the first century going through a terrible time of oppression under a regime, the Roman regime, which was a racist regime, and they considered themselves uh, racially superior, especially the Italians, and there's a stratification of, of superior and inferior races. I mean, if you read Roman history and how Romans looked at different peoples, you'll realize this idea of all people being created in the image of God and being equal, they didn't have any idea of that at all. And so... Um, you're dealing with a situation of oppression inherently, and the application of what Yeshua teaches is according to that. Now I'm going to skip to Luke chapter 4 for a minute and then come back to Matthew chapter 5 and show how this applies to us. But let me say that we cannot have any kind of social protest that we can be part of if it's violating the commandments of God. That, that, that the obedience to the commandments of God is the beginning of where we can enter into social influence. In Luke chapter 4, Yeshua is recognizing the nature of the situation he is coming into, a situation of oppression and difficulty. I was first very influenced on this by a book that came out of the 60s when we were having the big social protests at that time a book called The Politics of Jesus by John uh, Howard Yoder, who was a Mennonite. And you can read my uh, uh, exposition or the influence of that book on me in the book Jewish Roots. I refer to it. And by the way, he says some very pro-Messianic Jewish things in that book way back then in terms of interpreting the, the New Covenant. Yeshua, we read in Luke chapter 1, filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, Returned from the Jordan, he was led by the Ruach in the wilderness for 40 days, being tested. And then we read that when he uh, got from that testing, he came to the synagogue, and we read in Luke chapter 4, and he said this, he went into the synagogue, and they handed him the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, verse 18, the Spirit of God, the Ruach HaKodesh is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to the proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to free the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, this particular text is in the context of Yeshua bringing the kingdom of God to those that are marginalized and oppressed, those that are dispossessed, 
And we're going to find as we study all of the texts of the New Testament that it is God's order, and you can see how out of order that we've been in the body of believers, that the gospel is to be first given to the poor. Many have understood Luke chapter 1 to be a year of jubilee kind of thing where people are released from bondage and are released to return to their own lands. And that the freedom of, from bondage comes through the reception of the gospel because it produces a new opportunity for all who are in bondage, all who are oppressed. And the oppression under the Romans was quite extraordinary. Now, returning to the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew chapter 5, oftentimes misunderstood, but today much better understood, Yeshua begins by telling us what we know of as, as the Beatitudes. And in the Beatitudes, he says, this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, and Luke is just poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are um, the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, etc. In the history of Christianity, this has been interpreted as moral qualities that we should give ourselves to attain, to be poor in spirit, to be merciful, to, be, um, uh, to, to, to grieve over the condition of the world. But scholars today have a great deal of doubt about that. Folks such as Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, and N.T. Wright in his teaching on uh, Jesus and the victory of God, tell us that what Yeshua is talking here about is that a great reversal has come because he has come. And the conditions of people who are oppressed and marginalized and, and uh, suppressed and put down and, and uh, treated terribly, because the kingdom of God has broken into this world, they are no longer going to be in that kind of victim status from that oppression because a power of God has arrived in Yeshua, through Yeshua, that reverses the situation that they're in and gives them power to become overcomers. And that, you know, you see this in many, many other texts that with the coming of the kingdom of God, every mountain is made low. Those that are important uh, and, and favored according to this world are dispossessed, and those that are dispossessed come into possession because God's power enables people to overcome. So blessed are those that mourn because grief will no longer determine their life because Yeshua has come. Blessed are the poor in spirit because they are no longer to be poor in spirit because Yeshua has come. Now they can be overcomers. Blessed are those who are meek in the sense that they don't look like they're very much able to assert themselves, to take over, because in the power of God, they can now inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These people have always been frustrated, but now because the power of God, they're going to be able to find fulfillment of their hunger and thirst for righteousness. So a great reversal has come. Now, how does that reversal help us practically in orienting ourselves to the world. The second thing here is that we have to understand that love and justice and the teaching of Yeshua is overwhelmingly oriented to the rejection of 
violence. Other people that are not following Yeshua can engage in violence, but we cannot engage in or support violence ever. We might understand it. We might have a heart of emotional empathy for people and why they're doing this, but we can never support it. The context of Yeshua's teaching in the rejection of violence was a context of severe Roman oppression where a movement was taking place in Israel that ultimately took over the leadership of Israel called the Zealot Movement. And Yeshua knew this Zealot Movement, which was a movement of violent revolution. And in the context of the Zealot Movement and violent revolution, he gives this incredible teaching in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evildoer, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. And then in verse 4, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Now, many scholars have said the context of this text is that the Roman soldiers who occupied that land sometimes slapped Jewish people across the face and they wanted vengeance. They were being shamed. Just like our black brothers and sisters think they're being shamed by police, they're being shamed. And they want to lash out and violently respond. And we understand that, but, but for Yeshua's followers who are in those situations, they turn the other cheek because they show that their life is not being determined by a response in kind, by an eye for an eye response in kind to their oppressors. They show they are overcoming that oppression by not responding in kind. And then when the Roman soldiers shamed our people by making them carry a load for them, and they could conscript any Jewish person and say, hey, Jew, carry this load for me for a mile. They're not allowed to do it for more than one mile. We're to say, could I help you and carry this load for you for an extra mile? This is not the way human beings think when they're being oppressed and demeaned. But Yeshua is teaching that in the kingdom of God, breaking into this world, we are advancing the kingdom by not responding after the way of the world, but responding in ways that are so, from a human point of view, almost ridiculous. And yet this shows that we have a power from God that overcomes. The call for justice therefore, is a rejection of violence on the part of believers. And number four, the call for love and justice is a call for reconciliation and forgiveness. We have to find our way to Yeshua's heart to gain a heart of love for those who oppress us. In Matthew chapter 19, Peter says, How often shall my brother sin against me, and shall I forgive him seven times? And Yeshua says, no, 70 times seven. And he gives the example of a uh, servant who is forgiven a debt by his master, and then he doesn't forgive a fellow servant that's lower than him, a much smaller debt. And Yeshua is saying that the debt that we have been forgiven by God is an infinite debt, it's an overwhelming debt. So therefore, anything that anybody has done to us that needs to be forgiven is far less than what we did to God and what we've been forgiven for. So we have to have an orientation to forgiving. Now, I know for their sake, they have to repent that they might be blessed, but our orientation is forgiveness. So that is a huge thing.
we are called for forgiveness and reconciliation. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5.18, we are taught in the words of Paul that God has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation, where through the gospel we become reconciled to God and we become reconciled to one another. And that's amazing, right? Whatever our history has been, through Yeshua, we mutually repent and we become reconciled to one another through mutual repentance and healing. Now I want to apply these four to a fifth, and that is how do we pursue justice? I, I, as I look over history, I think that all great successful justice movements have only really succeeded when there was a significant involvement of believers driving those justice movements. As, as I look at the 19th century and the revivals that took place in the 1830s and 40s, and then people like Jonathan Blanchard, the founder of Wheaton College, my alma mater, and Charles Finney, and Harriet Beecher Stowe, who you all know wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. These were committed evangelical Bible believers. Uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe was uh, related to a brother who was a famous preacher. There was William Beecher and there was Henry Beecher, the father. And then you look at the movie Amazing Grace and the movement that was spurred by William Wilberforce that eliminated slavery throughout the British Empire. A Marxist movement for justice is going to produce violence and lead to greater suffering and greater injustice. And that's part of what's happening today. But our movement for justice begins by bringing people through Yeshua into reconciling with each other. And then when we have sufficient number of people reconciled and loving one another, then we can spur that kind of a justice movement that is based on reconciliation and it can lead to a non-violent movement of justice that includes all races and ethnicities. Martin Luther King was just such a believer. He went to school with one of my theology professors at Wheaton College for whom he was a hero. And when I was in that class, that was just about the time he was assassinated and it greatly affected my theology professor, Morris Inch at Wheaton. Um, this was a movement of people that was based on biblical values and norms. It's really, if you study it and you listen to the speeches and see the people that were driving this, the biblical dimensions of it were amazing. You can know that violence and destroying and killing others and other people have been killed and we need to say Kaddish for them too, have been killed in these riots. Uh, that like Yeshua taught, if we go the zealot route, it will set back the cause of justice. So we must pursue justice on the basis of reconciliation and love, not on the basis of hate and violence. Uh, I wanted to just say uh, one other thing about the zealots and Yeshua. You know, the Gospel of John also reflects this in John chapter 10 when Yeshua talks about those that came up for another, uh, through another, they were not the good shepherd. And he said, those that, that, that are not uh, from God, these are the ones that steal, kill, and destroy. John chapter 10 is talking about zealot messiahs. 
They steal, kill, and destroy. And he says, I'm the good shepherd. I give my life for the sheep. The others that have come up another way are false shepherds. And he says, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Also in Luke, he warns uh, about the zealots in regards to the situation of Jerusalem. And he says in that particular text, O Jerusalem, uh, that, that if only you knew what would make for peace, but you didn't recognize the time of your visitation. And he saw that they were going to go the zealot route instead of submitting to him. And it was going to lead to the destruction of Jerusalem. And it would produce a disaster. Once we begin a movement of love and reconciliation, and then we involve ourselves in the issues of justice, we can, from a biblical point of view, as followers of Yeshua, look into the claim of systemic racism. Now, I personally find that the claim of systemic racism is not helpful because it's too vague and it needs to be specified in terms of which institutions and practices have aspects to them that are discriminatory and racist. And I, by the way, find the center of that in the way public education is organized, but that's something totally other not to get into here. But to me, that would be a foundational thing to look at. It's not going to be from a Marxist agenda or a broad claim, but we're gonna look at things like corporations and job opportunities and training and cities and where investments are made and all of the things that are needed to lift up an underclass of black people. The last 60 years of trillions of dollars being spent has not worked. Some have made it through that, but it has not worked. There's got to be something else. Now, you might know something about this ministry called CHAT in the city of Richmond, which is um, uh, Churchill uh, uh, Activities and Tutoring, which also sponsors a high school. This is a ministry that Patty and I give to every month because this is the kind of ministry that is lifting people, and it's very important. We should have a thousand of these things. And I'm very critical of the white church because the primary investment of believers should always be to the most poor and marginalized, and that's not primarily where the thrust has been from the white church. And to me, if you want to look at systemic racism, it's, it's not an intentional racism, but it's an unintentional racism because the church has really failed to primarily follow the model of Yeshua in giving the gospel to the poor and to the most marginalized. So those are the things that I think about when I think of what's going on right now. You know, I've written this on my Facebook page. I would like to see a movement of, of thousands of churches mobilizing in the cities, black and white, and marching together for love and reconciliation and justice on a biblical basis instead of on a humanistic, violent basis. And that's a dream, you know, a dream. I thought I was going to see it happen. We were involved in a lot of these reconciliation things back when I was in Maryland with black and white churches. I was on boards together with black pastors and white pastors and seeking to bring progress. We really need to see a revival and an outpouring of the Holy Spirit so that we can affect our society more effectively. So just to review, love is the passionate identification with others that seeks their good. Justice is the pursuit of the ordering of our society 
the order of righteousness where every person can fulfill their good God-intended destiny. And we need to be those that are in the forefront of bringing people together in love and reconciliation. And when we have done that, we've broken down the barriers and people become one, then we can have movements for social justice. Just one little aside, one of the reasons why the 20th century church was so ineffective was a theology came into the church in the 20th century, talking about evangelicals, that said it's just about getting people to heaven and we shouldn't worry about those kind of issues in this life. It's, and, and there's reasons why they came into that and they totally abandoned the thrust of the revivalists a hundred years earlier and, uh, and gave up the cause of, of creating these kinds of movements for good. And I think they discredited the gospel to some degree when the forefront of, of, of progress was from the evangelical believers in the past. We as Messianic Jews, Messianic believers, need to be on the forefront of understanding what the New Testament says, what the Gospels say in a Jewish context. And we enter into this cause of justice on the basis of applying Torah practically as taught by Yeshua and the apostles. So I hope that's helpful to you. Uh, that's what I wanted to share. I went a little bit over. I'm sorry, but you know, I'm burdened for this thing. I want us to come at this from a biblical point of view and not get caught up in the arguments of the people that are not following Yeshua. Amen? Amen.